It's Tuesday, February 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Everyone wants a service dog, and the demand for these helpful pups has led to a rise of an industry with almost no regulation, and it can be pricey. Organizations can charge anywhere from $15,000 to $40,000 for a fully trained service dog, depending on the type of ailment they're supposed to help with. Trainers, for their part, do incur a lot of costs for boarding, training, and feeding, and must also account for some 60% of dogs that don't make it through the training process. Mark Ian Haruluk, Senior Colorado Correspondent for Kaiser Health News, joins us for the Wild West market of service dogs. Next, like many industries, the pandemic has taken the plant-based food industry on a roller coaster ride. Early on, regular meat prices rose about 40%, which led to the rise in sales of plant-based meats as an alternative by 65%. However, by the end of last year, sales were down, leading many to think that the novelty had worn off and the industry had peaked. The reality is that there's still a lot more to come, whether it's in the form of more fast food launches or other products beyond meat alternatives such as chicken, seafood, and bacon. Kenny Torella, reporter at Vox, joins us for the pandemic highs and lows of the plant-based food industry. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You know, when there's demand, <laughs> an industry pops up to meet it. So there have been all these sort of backyard trainers that have created, you know, for-profit companies to train service dogs. And they're charging, you know, sometimes up to thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 for a fully, service, uh, wow. fully trained service dog. Joining us now is Markian Haralak, Senior Colorado Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Thanks for joining us, Markian. Thanks for having me, Oscar. I wanted to talk about an interesting subject, service dogs, and the demand for service dogs that has gone up really high right now. It's kind of spurred this industry where people are training dogs, giving them to people, charging thousands of dollars for these services. And since there's really no regulation surrounding an industry like this, a lot of times dogs maybe aren't well-trained. There's a lot of problems that are going on with this. And obviously for the families in need of a service dog for a variety of reasons, right? Whether whatever the illness that the dog is catering to, you know, if things don't pound out, they're they're out a lot of money. So Mark, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing with this surge in demand for service dogs? You know, it's really interesting because it used to be that service dogs were primarily trained by these large kind of nonprofit groups that raised their own money and uh, provided these dogs to needy families for free. But as, you know, we learned uh, how incredible dogs are and then all the things they can do, you know, there's, there's just so many more patients that could be helped by a dog. You know, a kid has autism or epilepsy. There are dogs that could help them manage that. And so the waiting list became so long. And, you know, when there's demand, <laughs> an industry pops up to meet it. So there have been all these sort of backyard trainers that have created, you know, for-profit companies to train service dogs. And they're charging, you know, sometimes up to thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 for a fully service, uh, wow. fully trained service dog. Uh, you did profile a family who is in need of dogs, possibly two dogs. Tell me their story, just to kind of paint yeah. the picture of what it, what it looks like. Yeah, I, I spoke to a mother, Jenny Manas, who, uh, you know, she first thing she told me was, you know, I'm not that much of a dog person, but, you know, she's got three kids, all of which have, have some health issues. And her oldest daughter, Soraya, uh, was diagnosed with autism. And then her uh, her second oldest kid, Phoenix, uh, was diagnosed with epilepsy. And uh, doctors have kind of recommended that she get service dogs to help both of them. 
And so they started going through and looking through the process, and they think they've kind of found a cheaper option. They're, they're, they're hoping that they can buy a dog, do this sort of basic obedience training themselves, and then have that dog trained as a service dog. But it's still going to cost them $10,000 per dog. And this is a family that lives below the federal poverty line. So it's, it's a huge burden. And to, you know, your point about, uh, you know, this family is going to buy their own dog and then have it go through the training rather than picking out a program dog. So somebody, a, a, a dog that, uh, you know, the program, the, the people that are training it, they get it, they board the dog, they train the dog. And when it's all set and ready to go, they'll place it with a family. There's a lot of dogs that drop out of these programs. They're just not equipped to truly be a service dog you know some of them are can be very nice and all but you know they can't handle the training or do the job as effectively so there's a lot of dogs that don't make the cut and that could be possible for this family too and other families that are going that route yeah absolutely i mean it's, it's part of the reason why the costs are so high is they have to cover the 60 percent of dogs that will wash out of training as well as the ones that actually get placed but you know for the manis family they're going to uh, you know breed their own they're going to buy a, a bred dog and then train them and when it goes to the service training there's a very real possibility that, that dog won't be able to handle it so they're they're gambling that the dog will make it through and they'll save money but in the end they could end up with you know just a really expensive family pet and still not have that service dog that they need there's really no certification process for the service dogs i know these uh, companies and trainers will train them to handle specific illnesses and and ailments and all that but that's they're saying this dog is ready to help there. There's no overall governing board or something that gives a certificate to that dog. There are companies that have popped up where you can register your animal as, as, as a service animal. And we've obviously you know heard all the stories about people taking the peacocks onto the planes and things of that sort. It's an unregulated industry. But even the, on the dog training side, there's really kind of no regulation or oversight. There is a, uh, a nonprofit uh, sort of industry group at the North American Board of the Assistance Dogs International, and they do accredit service dog trainers, but that accreditation is voluntary. Only nonprofits are allowed to be accredited. It takes a few years to do it, but it does give folks uh, some reassurance that this is a legitimate outfit training dogs, that they know what they're doing. But even those dogs, when, you know, when they come out, you don't get any sort of certificate to say, oh, yes, this dog has passed some sort of trial so we know that they can do what, what uh, the nonprofit has promised. We're talking about this kind of rise of an industry, right, where a lot of people are training dogs. There's always bad actors, unfortunately, and, and this is part of the story. So you had a couple of examples where there were some attorneys generals in different states that actually filed lawsuits against trainers for not providing what they you know they were supposed to and in these cases they were i think one of them charged a family twenty seven thousand dollars for a dog just uh, huge sums of money yeah it's uh it's you know part of the unregulated industry you know there's there's no oversight and there's really very little recourse for families i mean in this case you know in virginia and in north carolina these two dog training outfits that were sued by the attorney general the families were able to get you know somebody at the state level to take up their cause and file suit but for most families you know if you get a dog that isn't properly trained you're just kind of out the money and you don't really have have much recourse there 
Um, it's also a problem, you know, the, a lot of these trainers rely on volunteers to do parts of the training, you know, they, to, to take the dogs out into public. And, you know, they, they get college students, they'll take the dog with them to class and things of that sort. And the deal is that the trainer is supposed to pay for their food and their vet bills and things of that sort while they're doing this training. And some of those college students get, you know, left out to dry as well when these companies go under or when they're just simply unscrupulous. So it, it's very much a, you know, sort of a Wild West situation out there and sort of buyer beware. Has there been any effort made to form some type of certification process, uh, you know, anything on the governmental level to, to get involved with regulating this? Yeah, there really hasn't been anything like that. I, you know, I asked around to see whether there were any state legislatures or even on the federal level, people stepping in to do this. There are some regulations around service animals on airplanes that are written by the Department of Transportation, but that doesn't really go to the training of the dogs. It's, it really relies on an individual to stipulate that their dog is a service dog and, and they perform certain duties to help them and things of that sort. So there's no oversight uh, of this industry, and, and, and that's really leaving families uh, at risk. I think uh, you talked about a, a group called Medical Mutts. So it just it costs mm-hmm. them $11,000 yeah. just to board and train the dog. Obviously, they have to make a profit after that, too, if, if that's part of the industry, right? If they're not donating the dog like that. But that's why these costs are so high. Absolutely. I mean, you think about, you know, the cost of acquiring the dog, whether it's from a breeder or whether you're breeding those dogs by yourself, then uh, six months of, of caring for that dog, buying all the supplies, the food, taking him to the vet, getting his shots. And then, you know, a, a half a year into that dog's life, he starts training to be a service dog. And that's a very labor intensive process. So it is an expensive proposition. And Unfortunately, some people will take advantage of that. One of the things that's, that's really kind of allowed this, this for-profit industry to grow is, is the ability for people to raise money online through GoFundMe or Facebook or things of that sort, knowing that people aren't paying this you know, $40,000 sometimes price tag out of their own pocket, the trainers can sort of get away with that and, and, and still be able to make a profit. So it's, it's a very different world from you know, even 20 years ago when the demand wasn't as high, we didn't know as much about what dogs could do, and the ability to sort of crowdsource the funds for a dog wasn't existent. It's really an industry that's crying out for some regulation right now. Mark Ian Harlock, Senior Colorado Correspondent for Kaiser Health News, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Oscar. Appreciate it. When a young industry so heavily relies on just a few key ingredients, if the price of those ingredients go up, if the supply of those ingredients goes down, that's going to cause problems in the supply chain. And that's exactly what happened during the pandemic. Joining us now is Kenny Torella, reporter at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Kenny. Thanks for having me, Oscar. Let's take a look into the plant-based food industry and how the pandemic has impacted them. Obviously, the pandemic just disrupted pretty much every part of our lives and all of our industries, the supply chain issues, all the stuff that was going on we've been talking about for a long time. But the plant-based food industry uh, had some interesting turns. Right before the pandemic, it looked like it was a, a booming industry. Uh, you know, sales were good. A lot of new products were being launched. And then the pandemic hit. We saw 
regular meat prices rise, uh, the sales of plant-based meat products surge. Everybody thought it was a really good time, but then things started dropping off again. And obviously they got also got hit by supply chain issues. And right now the picture is uh, a little uneven. There's things that are pointing to it being really good still, other things that are cause for some worry for those in the industry. So Kenny, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? Yeah, that's right. Like so many industries, the plant-based sector was not immune to all the volatility of the pandemic, both you know, consumers panic buying groceries early on in the pandemic to then labor shortages and supply chain disruptions. So, you know, there were highs and lows for the plant-based sector throughout the pandemic. And so I'll just run over first. The highs were that, you know, people were stuck at home. Um, they had to cook. Restaurants were closed. And so people naturally began to experiment uh, with cooking and wanted to try new things. People generally just became more conscientious during the pandemic and became open to new experiences. So you saw a big rise in the purchasing of plant-based products, alternatives to meat, dairy, and eggs. In the first months of the pandemic, sales went up 65% for the first few months uh, in early 2020 going into mid-2020. And uh, at the same time, some of the issues in the meat industry were on full display, which caused people to kind of have a first glimpse into the inner workings of how animals are turned into meat. Um, You had COVID ripping through slaughterhouses, causing slowdowns in production, which uh, meant that there were some meat shortages and you saw the meat industry, you know, making front page news um, most weeks. And so that you know, caused a tailwind for the plant-based sector. You saw sales growing, but like you mentioned, there were many things that affected a lot of sectors that came for the plant-based sector eventually, such as labor shortages, supply chain disruptions. Some companies had trouble filling orders and keeping plant-based burgers on the shelves and on menus. And, you know, some big players like Beyond Meat and Morningstar Farms even had earnings shortfalls in the third quarter of last year. And the, the fact is that this industry is still in its infancy. It might be the case that over the last five years, as, as consumers have become much more aware of these products. They've tried them. Maybe some they like, some they don't. They come back for more or they you know, give up on the sector for, for a year or two. But I think you know, the industry is still in its infancy and we're not sure where it's going to go. But, you know, I spoke with a, an, an analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, and she said, she said that she predicts the plant-based sector uh, will make up about 5% of the global meat market in 2030. Right now, it's at less than 1%. So still is a long way to go to get there. And uh, consumer enthusiasm is mixed. We both see some fast food trials of plant-based meat have flopped, while some are just starting to take off. Just this week, McDonald's launched it's McPlant Burger made with Beyond Meat in 600 locations. Last month, KFC launched a Beyond Meat chicken product in its 4,000 locations. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. It's, it's yeah. been a wild ride for the sector throughout the last two years, and uh, it'll be interesting to see where it goes in the next two years. Right now, we're kind of in this mode where we're deep into the kind of beef, the hamburger meat alternatives, the burger alternatives. Um, But there's a lot of other products on the way. Uh, Seafood, chicken, we're starting to see a lot more chicken products, different things like that that are on the horizon that could, you know, energize the industry and energize uh, consumers' appetite for these other types of alternatives. So, 
you know, a lot of these uh, uh, products currently are in different stages of the life cycle. So while we might be seeing dips right now, you know, in the future, it could uh, be revived pretty easily if a, another hit product takes place. For a long time, you know, veggie burgers tasted more like veggies than burgers. And then about five years ago, Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods hit the scene and really showed meat eaters and non-vegetarians that it's possible to make plant-based burgers that taste more like meat than the veggie burgers of the past. And we've seen the plant-based food industry stick to a few basics, making vegetarian versions of ground beef, of burgers, of sausages, milk, like you mentioned. And then now there's a, a, a preponderance of new vegetarian chicken products hitting the market. But the human diet is much more expansive. And so I think over the next five years, what we're going to see is a lot more variety. We'll probably see more varieties of plant-based bacon, plant-based cheeses and yogurts, uh, as well as different kinds of vegan and vegetarian seafood, and perhaps even more sophisticated uh, cuts of meat like a steak, if you will. So I think in the, the last five years has kind of been introducing these products to the general public, but I think over the next five years, we're going to see a, you know, growing sophistication and um, perhaps it'll strike more enthusiasm, perhaps it won't, we'll see. I'm always interested in what happens with supply chain issues as we've seen across various industries. So what happened at least in the uh, plant-based industry? I know uh, you mentioned in the article, the price of yellow peas was rising because uh, there was a drought in Canada, and that was a, a huge impact on the industry. The plant-based food sector relies on just a few key ingredients. That includes soybeans, peas, coconut oil, and wheat. When a young industry so heavily relies on just a few key ingredients, if the price of those ingredients go up, if the supply of those ingredients goes down, that's going to cause problems in the supply chain. And that's exactly uh, what happened during the pandemic. Um, in the summer of 2021, Canada, which is a major producer of yellow peas, due to severe weather, saw in, uh, a 45% reduction in its output of yellow peas which caused some issues for plant-based meat makers. And actually, the, the Good Food Institute, uh, a nonprofit that advocates for plant-based foods, has kind of sent a warning call to the industry saying that if the industry doesn't create more diversity in its ingredient sourcing, it doesn't so heavily rely, if it continues to so heavily rely on these four or five main ingredients, it's going to continue to cause ingredient problems into the, into the future, supply chain problems into the future. And I think one other point uh, that, I, that I'd want to make here is that because a lot of these plant-based meat, dairy, and cheese uh, makers are so small, you know, even Beyond Meat is tiny compared to, say, Kellogg or General Mills, that means they're relying a lot on third-party manufacturers. So when demand increases, they can't just automatically go to their own factories and increase the supply they're relying on these other manufacturers that are also servicing other startups and other smaller companies. So I think right now the industry is kind of uh, in its toddler phase and it's going to need to grow up and become more independent, more self-reliant in order to avoid some of these supply chain disruptions that it experienced during the pandemic and reliably you know, stock its products on grocery store shelves and on restaurant menus. Kenny Torella, reporter at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.